Well, brothers and sisters, we come now to the Word of God in terms of our message this morning. And if you would turn to 1 Kings chapter 16, 29 to 34, or if you would just simply turn to the scripture passage as it's given to you in the worship handout, I will read this in just a moment. I also want to call attention to an addendum to our worship materials this morning, a historical background on the divided kingdom. And I would encourage you uh, to somehow multitask as we begin this message to uh, look through that, note some significant things in terms of the background and context of where we are right now as we jump into uh, the book of First Kings at the 16th chapter of the 29th verse. Uh, we do not have enough time to give everything necessary. That's why I gave a kind of a pricey of, of this information in this handout. Uh, so we're just going to launch in, and hopefully with the handout and a few other words of introduction, you'll be able to understand exactly where we are and what the historical context is and why this section of the Word of God, I think, is so relevant to us today. So beginning the reading then, 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 through 34. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his day, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Let's pray. Our God and Father, uh, we come to this section of your word. We confess and believe that uh, in every way, the narrative we have here is your word. We are not like those who would pick and choose from Genesis to Revelation uh, and our own abilities and merits decide that some things belong to you and some things don't. Father, we know that that is a broken and terribly broken view of what the scriptures happen to be. But we confess that all scripture is breathed out by you. And therefore, all passages of Scripture are able to teach us and to correct us and to train us in righteousness so that we, your people, can be adequately equipped for every good work. And so we come to this passage and to uh, this section of your word and to this study, this brief examination of Ahab. And we know that we will find in here that which will build us up in our most holy faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so give us your spirit, your Holy Spirit, 
to open up our hearts and minds to an understanding of these things, uh, that we might not only read your word, hear your word, uh, explore it, but take it into our lives in such a way that we would not be uh, guilty of what James said, a hearer of the word only, but we would both hear and do in a manner that would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning is, uh, When the Foundations Are Being Destroyed, What Can the Righteous Do? Now, that happens to be a passage that is taken out of Psalm 11, verse 3. But I want us to be thinking about this in terms of our culture. How can we not be concerned with our culture and even with our civilization? How can we not be wondering how we as Christians ought to respond? This question needs to be addressed. It must be answered. When the foundations of everything that most of us have known in our years of life, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can we who are believers actually do? Well, we can find what we need, at least basically and fundamentally in Scripture. Because the truth is, the human condition and the human predicament never really change. And that which stands against the Christian faith has always essentially been of the same quality, the same character, with the same spiritual forces behind it. Paul called this opposing force the schemes of the devil, this present darkness, cosmic powers, doctrines of demons, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And if you were to name this by the term that our spiritual forefathers regularly named it, a term that actually comes out of the way of the New Testament uh, was formally translated, you would call it paganism. Paganism is described for us in Romans chapter 1 as essentially three things. It's first of all the rejection of the true knowledge of the true God, uh, to reject God as the creator and the ultimate moral authority. Secondly, when the worship of God is rejected, that thing of worship is then replaced by the worship of the creation, the worship of created things, as though the divine nature is to be found in them and the divine nature is to be identified with the created world. Thirdly, the third aspect that we find all the way through paganism is the rejection of God's design for human sexuality, replaced by a full liberty to practice every sort of act that God has consistently condemned in his word. The devil's purpose in instigating paganism has always been to first contaminate the true worship of the people of God and then move to the replacement of the true worship of the true God. Now, our studies in the stories of Elijah and Elijah, which we're embarking upon today, are set in the context of this conflict between God's truth and paganism. Uh, we begin with Ahab because he becomes, as we get into his story and the story of Elijah, the chief promoter of paganism and his first and chief opponent is the prophet Elijah. Uh, the background to this story is important because the purpose of biblical history 
is to teach us about the things that happened before and to identify those things that happened before, which actually mirror things that are happening today. And then to show us the presence of God, to show us God's ways in order that we might understand what it means to be a faithful Christian, faithful to Christ, faithful to his mission in the world as we see it today. And so my main concern as we go through these stories that, that are we going to find in the rest of First Kings and into Second Kings, my concern out of these stories is to show what it means to walk by faith and to live by faith and to face the uncertainties of our day when paganism overrides and overwhelms the moral and spiritual climate of our country, even as paganism overwhelmed and overrode everything that was godly within the nation of Israel during the time of Ahab and the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. That isn't all that we need to say, but it's the main thing. That no matter how far the world rejects the truth of God, the goodness of the gospel, our calling and our mission are going to remain the same. We are to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, so that we might be intent upon pleasing the Lord in every good work, and that we might increase in our knowledge of God in such a way that we might be strengthened with the power of the glorious power of Christ for all endurance and for all impatience. And yet still that we might have joy, that we might inheritance of the saints. For the Father has delivered us out of the domain of darkness, paganism, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. So our main theme all the way through this series is going to be this, that even if paganism has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in this age and in this culture, uh, the call to all believers is to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. And so as we begin with today's message, as we begin by looking at Ahab, uh, we're going to be looking at how during this time of history, Ahab was so instrumental in the eclipse of biblical truth. And he was a promoter of a full return to full-scale paganism. That background is important for us to understand as we begin to look then into the ministry of Elijah and then Elijah to see how God's hand was still at work even when everything else seemed to be broken foundations and the righteous were saying, what in the world are we supposed to do? Now, as we look at this passage, verses 29 through 34, uh, there's a basic outline here and I give all credit and all thanks for this basic outline to the great um, late Puritan uh, theologian, commentator, scripture writer, Matthew Henry. Because he has pointed out that in this brief passage, uh, the story of Ahab that's presented here involves his wickedness, his wife, and his worship. The excessiveness of the wickedness of Ahab, and then the depravity of his wife Jezebel, 
and then the abomination that was his worship as he turned all Israel to paganism. Those are the things that I want us to see this morning, always keeping in mind that this description has parallels with what we see going on within our own culture today. So we begin by once again reading verses 29 to 31 and then verse 33, which gives us an overview of the excessive wickedness of Ahab. So once again, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, <clears throat> Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. <clears throat> and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And then verse 33, and Ahab made an Asherah. <clears throat> Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. <clears throat> what I want us to begin with is to just quickly look at the wickedness of Ahab in terms of his infamy and his legacy. And it's really given to us in verse 30. <clears throat> Ahab did more evil than all those were who were before him. So in this one verse, we have a summation of Ahab's story. But we need to pause and we need to realize that the judgment here given is not the judgment of history. It's not the judgment of any human being from any particular political viewpoint. This is the judgment of the inspired writer of 1 Kings. This is a prophetic judgment. This is the judgment given by God. God tells us that Ahab is the most evil of all the kings so far to rise up in the northern kingdom of Israel. Evil not because perhaps he's a coward or even the fact that he's a murderer. Rather, it is for this reason. Under the reign of Ahab, there is a further turning point spiritually for the northern kingdom of God's people. Under Ahab's reign, under his influence, the kingdom of Israel officially returns to a full paganism. Now, I encourage you to look at the handout and see what is the nature of paganism and what is Ahab actually bringing the people to. Biblically, they are returning to the very paganism that provoked God to destroy all of the nations of Canaan in the first place and to drive them out so that the land of Canaan could be the promised land for the people of Israel. Ahab opens the door fully wide for the return of all those pagan practices that God declared to be an abomination in his sight. Now, I think that calls upon us to actually review the earlier warning that God had given to his people about paganism before he brought his people into the promised land. And perhaps the most succinct and telling place in the first five books of the Bible, Laws of Moses, is found in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18. 
I'm going to read the first five verses, which are an introduction, and then I'm going to summarize uh, the next set of verses before I close the chapter. <clears throat> so Leviticus chapter 18, begin at verse 1. If you want to turn there and follow along, it would be good to do so. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall not. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now then, verses 6 through 23, God describes with great clarity the sexually immoral practices that were common among the pagans. Common. That is to say, these practices were not practiced in a hidden way. That is to say, these practices were not considered taboo, and people only did them behind closed doors where no one would find out. No, they were common. They had become culturally normative. They had the endorsement of the cultural and religious leadership. They were the practice that were approved by the gods, even required by the gods in some cases. And Leviticus describes them, God's words, as abominations. The first section, and a fairly large section, involves the, the thing of incest. Incest within the family, incest within close relatives. Uh, rejected as an abomination by God. And then he goes on to mention adultery with neighbors. Again, an abomination rejected by God. And then, <clears throat> although they didn't practice abortion, uh, they really didn't need to as pagans because they sacrificed any unwanted children to Moloch, who's most likely a god of the dead. Then the passage moves on to homosexuality, lastly, to bestiality. All of those characterized as abominations before the Lord. And then finally, the chapter wraps up this way, beginning at verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations. Either the native or the stranger host sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among the people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Now this is Ahab's infamy and legacy. He reintroduces the people of God, the northern kingdom, 
to these pagan abominations. And he sets the stage for the threat that God gives in verse 28 of Leviticus. The land will vomit them out when they make it unclean. Now, eventually that is what happens. God is patient after the time of Ahab for another 130 years. God sends his servants, the prophets. The leaders and the people are warned repeatedly, but the nation does not repent. The people of Israel keep making themselves and the land unclean by these abominations. And consequently, uh, the Assyrians come and conquer them in 722 BC. And this northern kingdom, along with its ten tribes, are exiled off to Assyria. That's Ahab's legacy. But we should continue by looking at the excessiveness of his wickedness as a kind of a family trait. We read that Ahab follows in the footsteps of his father. Now, in the first two verses, he is called the son of Omri three times. <clears throat> that threefold repetition emphasizes this most strongly, to draw the connection between the father's evil nature and the son's evil nature. Because back in chapter 16, earlier than this passage, in verses 25 to 26, we read this about Ahab's father, Omri. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did more evil than all of those who were before him. For he walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So Omri is more evil than the five preceding kings of Israel. And now Ahab is just like his father, but even more so. Uh, the father-to-son influence is most evident. But a significant additional factor is the length of Ahab's reign. Uh, <clears throat> Omri reigned only 12 years. Ahab reigns for 22 years. And that gave Ahab almost twice the amount of time to prosecute and then to spread and promote the evil of paganism that he spearheaded as the king. But the most significant aspect of his wickedness is his marital alliance with a worshiper of Baal. Verse 31, we read, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. This was a most evil marriage to a most evil woman. Ahab marries Jezebel. Jezebel marries Ahab to Baal. And that's why we should consider next Ahab's wife and her depravity. Now, of course, this is the infamous Jezebel. All sorts of people have no clue as to who Jezebel was in the Bible, but if they hear a woman described as a Jezebel, then they know basically, watch out for her kind of thing. The story is part of our culture. But the actual truth is, is grounded in, in the paganism of this woman's background, uh, this woman's upbringing, uh, this woman's strongest set of convictions. No, no, what the scriptures say here, though, in verse 31, the taking of Jezebel as his wife 
made walking in the sins of Jeroboam look like something trivial. That's the most important indicator of how seriously evil this marriage happens to be. God places the blame on this marriage to Jezebel as so instrumental to the great evil that Ahab actually does. She's instrumental. Ahab is still judged to be the most evil. Uh, she's a stimulus. She's a provocateur in all of this. But the blame still rests upon Ahab himself for all of evil. You know, there's this is an interesting kind of thing that we find in Scripture, but it's very, very important. It doesn't matter who has influenced you to do evil. It doesn't, does not matter who has, has, has been a whatever in your life and it's caused you to be a bad person. The blame rests with what you choose to do with the influences that are in your life. And, and that's why Ahab doesn't get a free pass because he married such a despicably evil woman. Uh, he himself, as the king, has done more evil than all of the others who had preceded him. Well, because Ahab rules as the king, Jezebel is an incredibly major influence. Her whole story is about how she as queen exploits the power of her husband to further her own agenda. And that agenda is to link to her father and the paganism that she had gotten from him. So note this about Jezebel's father. The king of the Sidonians, because she's a Sidonian princess, this king is named Ethbaal. That is, his name is a combination of a, of a preposition that's connected to Baal. So it means either with Baal or to Baal or from Baal. All three of those are possibilities. But in any case, the significance is this. It means living under Baal's favor. So Baal is the patron god of the Sidonians. So Ethbaal lives and rules under the favor of Baal. And Jezebel is her father's daughter, as we say, and is deeply committed to bringing the religion of Baal to her husband's kingdom. But there might be something else here at play that doesn't change the, the ethical character of any of this, or even the religious commitment of any of this. This alliance between Ahab and Ethbaal, between these two countries, between these two kings, is actually very good financially for both the Sidonians and for the Israelites, according to what we know from history. So to make that alliance stronger, it is highly strategic to have religious unity. And that is Jezebel's agenda, to be a powerful importer and promoter of the pagan worship of her own country. Now, I want to move perhaps quickly here beyond this text and what it has to say to look at a couple of places that really comment upon her total legacy. Here we want to note that later Jezebel has a daughter. And then she and Ahab marry this daughter to a king of Judah, to Jehoram. Jehoram happens to be the son of the very good king Jehoshaphat. 
one who followed the ways of the Lord. But we are told, not unsurprisingly, in 2 Kings 8, 18, that Jehoram walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Jezebel raised her daughter to do to the king of Judah no less than what she had done to Ahab, uh, to cause him to become a follower of Baal, and then consequently to do all of this evil in the sight of the Lord by bringing into the southern kingdom and into the house of David pagan worship and pagan practices. Then this is said about Jezebel on or near the day that she dies by uh, Jehu, uh, a man that God appoints to bring judgment on the house of Ahab and upon Jezebel. So in 2 Kings 9, verse 22, we read this. And when Joram, who was the son of Ahab, saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And Jehu answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? And this gives us further insight into the character of Jezebel's evil nature and into the spiritual darkness of paganism. The word whorings here refer to sexual immoralities and the word sorceries here to witchcraft. Or, as it says in Deuteronomy 18.10, to anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or sorcerer. All of these things were things that Jezebel was committed to, involved in. This is why Jezebel is used symbolically in the letter of Jesus to the church at Thyatira, in Revelation chapter 2, about a woman within their midst who was tempting the people to paganism. Revelation 2.20 says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. That is to say, uh, this woman was enticing, seducing, and encouraging believers to return back to the paganism out of which they were delivered, which always involved idolatry and sexually immoral practices. If we begin to see parallels with the kinds of things going on within our culture today and the agendas that are being pushed today, we should not be surprised. And then finally, the third point is Ahab's worship. Ahab's worship, which was an abomination to God and which provoked God's anger. So at the end of verse 31, we read, as we've read before, that Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him. Verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of anger, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, this becomes very significant. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. 
He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, the first thing I want us to see involves a concept that we can call replacement theology. Under Ahab, the national and spiritual policy of idolatry was continued and intensified to be more thoroughly pagan. Now, remember Jeroboam, the first king, as you can read in the uh, background handout, Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, the breakaway kingdom, had instituted idolatry. He had created these golden calves. He had called them the gods that had brought Israel out of Egypt. And for about 50 plus years or so, this system had worked to some degree. The Israelites still believed that they were the chosen people of God. They still believed that it was Yahweh, the God Yahweh, who had brought them out of Egypt. Uh, and the prophets still came to them and confronted them and spoke to them as the people of God. So they had this idea that they were still, even though they were worshiping idols, these golden calves, they were still worshiping the God of the gods who had brought them out of Egypt. So their, their historical continuity all the way back to the Exodus and then all the way back to Abraham was still unbroken by the religious things that they were practicing. But it was not the word of God and it was not truth. But with Ahab, something different happens. It is a major turning point because even this broken worship of Yahweh gets replaced. Ahab builds a temple house of worship of Baal in his capital city of Samaria and with it this altar of worship unto Baal. And then he adds this sacred pole symbol for the worship of Asherah, who was Baal's consort, even Baal's wife. And in these ways, he makes his commitment to Baal, to full-fledged paganism, and to all of its practices as the national policy of Israel. And as we read through his story, and then into Jezebel's story, and the role of Elijah, and then Elisha, we see that the end game of Ahab, the end game of Jezebel, the end game of the cosmic powers of darkness is to eradicate the true knowledge of the true God and the true worship of the true God. And this is why Ahab angered God more than all the kings of Israel before him. Now, I want you to understand that there is a there is a clear historical parallelism to what is happening and what has happened within our culture. At the heart of the LGBT plus agenda is the replacement of the biblical understanding of God, the biblical understanding of human sexuality with those pagan practices that God called an abomination. And inside the church, this process of acceptance of this agenda has accelerated greatly since 2015 with the Obergefell Supreme Court decision. Where today, you know, scarcely six years later to seven years later, where those who were who would be identified as millennial Christians, whether from evangelical ranks or within the Reformed world or mainline denominations, they are very open to rethink and very open to revoice their views in the direction of a greater acceptance of this agenda.
Now, scholars who are keen observers of what is, of what is happening have aptly named this Christopaganism. And it's an accurate idea. It's an accurate name. Even from the time of Jeroboam to Ahab, one could have said that the religion practiced by the northern kingdom was Yahweh paganism. A, a, a trying to blend together of things that are ultimately incompatible, but the idea of blending together uh, the name of Christ, the name of God, the name of Yahweh, with practices that actually God has condemned. There's a second great impact in terms of Ahab's ministry here that I want us to note. What Ahab was doing was promoting a narrative that God and his word can be dismissed. It can be outright dismissed. We see this in the rebuilding of Jericho by this man, Heel. Because Ahab promoted the total replacement of the worship of the true God by his pagan worship of Baal, this meant that God and God's word could be safely ignored. And this further meant that anything that God had forbidden to do, nevertheless, might be safely done. And that's the context for the rebuilding of Jericho. This site had been vacant for 600 years because no one had dared challenge the curse that God had placed upon this city when Joshua destroyed it at the beginning of the conquest of the paganism in Canaan. In Joshua 6, 26, this is what we read. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. And that's what we read in chapter 16 here, verse 34. Heel, very possibly under the commission of Ahab, lays the foundation for this new Jericho, and his firstborn son dies. He finishes the rebuilding of the city and sets up its gates, and his youngest son dies. And the writer of First King notes that this sad story fulfills the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, which Yahweh spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And we too are seeing in our day things that God has cursed being manipulated by words and stories into acceptable practices and beliefs. Now, we have to stop here. In light of all this, though, I want us to think about God and his word in the gospel. God has been at war with paganism since Genesis chapter 3. His response then and his response now is the gospel of his son. Now, we are called to learn from history, all of this from history. God's unchanging truth, God's unchanging attitude to all aspects of the cosmic forces of darkness, which paganism embodies, so that ultimately we might not desire evil. Because in the context of the New Testament, the, the, the one city in all the Greco-Roman Empire that, that stood out most graphically, a place where full-orbed paganism uh, was in full display and full practice was the city of Corinth. 
Paganism there was the most anti-Christian of any place you could find in all of the empire. So listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. This is chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Now, here are the lessons and the applications. First, the Old Testament scriptures are written for our instructions. And this is a mandate for us to learn from them as they apply to us today. Secondly, right at the time of the Exodus, that which pulled the Israelites away from God was pagan idolatry, which is always connected with sexually immoral practices. Thirdly, we're told by Paul here, verse 12, take heed. We are not invincible. We must learn from history how the Israelites fell. And verse 6 says it's because they desired evil. We must take heed. We must keep a close watch on ourselves and a close watch over our desires that we would be sanctifying our desires, mortifying the flesh, seeking to live and follow Christ as we should. And verse four, I mean, point four, verse 13 is a call to faith. That is to say, we have to recognize that the temptations of the day are in fact common. They're not uncommon. All of the sexual temptations that the Corinthians faced in their sexually ungodly city were common to humankind. And we must have faith in God that God himself is faithful to give us no temptations that really are beyond our ability to withstand because we are promised here that he will also provide the way of escape, that we will be able to endure that which we faced. But implicit, fifth point, implicit in all of scripture and everything that Paul writes and all that Jesus taught is this, the way of faith the way to be able to withstand is based upon the only way we can actually live the Christian life, and that is in dependence upon Christ. For Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And like the Proverbs that call us to live constantly in the fear of the Lord and in dependence upon the Lord, 
as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 would say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and then he will make your straight your paths straight. Sixth, lastly, we must live gospel-centered lives as confessing, repenting sinners who trust only in the righteousness of Christ credited to us for our salvation. Now, that isn't all we need to say, but that's the main thing. No matter how far the world rejects the truth of God, the goodness of the gospel, our calling and mission remains the same. We are to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, so that we might be intent upon fully pleasing him, that we might bear fruit in every good work, that we might increase in our knowledge of God, that we might be strengthened with the power of Christ's glorious might for all endurance and patience, that we might have joy, that we might give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. For the Father has delivered us out of the domain of darkness. He's delivered us out of paganism and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that in the weeks ahead, we would be able to be instructed by your word in such a way that when the question is raised in our minds, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Uh, we would know that the righteous place their faith in a sovereign God, the gospel of his son, the working of the Holy Spirit, and then seeking, Lord, simply to please you and to bear fruit in every good work in every way that you would set things before us. Remind us again and again that our calling is to be who we are supposed to be, faithful followers of the Lord Jesus, and those who, as faithful followers, would be able to bear light in these dark days and to be salt in a world that ultimately is thirsty for meaning and significance, which they can only find in your Son. Help us then, Lord, to persevere. Help us to have endurance and strength in Christ that we need, uh, that we might be those who reflect the goodness of your gospel at all times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.